We on? There we go. Start making your way to your class, and as they do, we're going through a series of the book of Revelation. So adults, if you want to turn in Revelation, we'll be in Revelation chapter 1, and it's just kind of they go. Let me give you a little listening strategy uh, for this morning. Um, I know I often talk fast. And whenever I get nervous, I talk even faster, and I'm always nervous when I get up. So that means I'm always talking. So one of the most common things Cynthia does from the second row is she gives me this sign, and it's slow down. And I know even last week, we t well, one of the challenges is I, I kinda, I'll make a deal with you, because um, I pour a lot of content into what hopefully is 30 minutes, and, and I know it's hard to, to track sometimes. So kind of my deal with you is if you try your best to pay attention, I won't waste any of your time. And then I'll give you stories spread out to kind of give you mental rest so you can, so you can relax. But this Sunday is even going to be worse than normal. And so there's, I mean, obnoxious is not the right word, but there's a, um, there's a large amount of content that probably is just going to come flowing out. So I'll work to pace it. And if you're one of those like note takers, you feel like I got to take down, your, your, your hand will just fall off. So don't even try. And actually what you're going to see this week is you're going to see in seed form what's going to bloom into the sermon series um, from now uh, as we get out of Revelation that'll last us through next Easter. So I'm going to kind of point you through, through to some of those things. So we're going to be talking about Jesus and uh, our series that we're going through now is through Revelation, and it's called The Victory of Jesus and the Vision of Trinity. And we're asking the question, um, what can we learn about from the book of Revelation that can help shape who we are as a church at this stage in our life? And we're looking at Revelation because I'm becoming increasingly gripped by the verse in chapter 21 where Jesus is on his throne and it says, Behold, I am making all things new. And ask him, what would it be like? What is it to join Jesus as he's making all things new? And the book of Revelation is an invitation where he says, join me as I'm making all things new. And so we're looking at some of the different symbols. So we want to embed kind of meaning of who we are as a church and what we're trying to do in our different symbols. So one of the symbols is you can look at our logo. And our logo has kind of the, these waves that are pointed vertical. And so part of that imagery is that we live in an ambitious, um, an, an ambitious community with lots of ambitions. And we kind of represent that through the, the Lake Nona waves. And, but all of those ambitions are horizontal horizontally directed, uh, ambitions going this way. And uh, one of the reasons we exist as a church is to, to lift those up, to point them vertical. And uh, we're going to look this morning, we've been looking at the first part of Revelation because it does that. It takes your gaze off of yourself and your world and lifts you up to see the Father, to see the Spirit, and to see the Son. And in chapter 1, there's this remarkable um, description of who Jesus is. So we kind of joked on the email that went out yesterday, it's Mother's Day and to celebrate, we're going to talk about Jesus and tell you about who he is. And so um, if you have your little guide, uh, I printed it out in such a way where I want you to kind of see, because actually it's printed so you can kind of see the logic of the text. But listen to verse uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 4, but we're just going to key on on 5 and 6. So John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come. That's the Father. And to the seven spirits who are before the throne, that's the Holy Spirit that we looked at last week. And then from Jesus Christ, images uh, that we showed the very first week to always, one image if you always are reading through Revelation wondering what it's about, the best image is just an image you all know. Some of you might even be wearing that image. And it's the Nike swoosh. 
Because Nike, Nike, is Greek for victory. The swoosh means victory, to be victorious. And one of the, the theme word all throughout Revelation is, is victory to the victorious, to the ones who conquer. And what it is is an invitation that Jesus is victorious, and he's inviting us into his victory to join him. So let's look at the first three. The titles is Faithful Witness, Firstborn of the Dead, Ruler of the Kings of the Earth. And kind of notice the progression. He's a faithful witness. When he came, his life in ministry was to witness to who God is, who he was, who we are, what we need. He's the faithful witness. And then he's the firstborn who rose from the dead. And then he's now the ascended, ruling, reigning king, uh, ruler of the kings of the earth. So that first word, witness, he's a faithful witness. This actually is one of the, another one of the theme words all throughout Revelation. It's the word martyr. He's the faithful martyr. And I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear the word martyr. Often we think it connected to death. But it didn't come to mean that till about the second century. Justin Martyr was the first one who got martyr connected to his name because he was a faithful witness. And his witness for Christ led to his death. But it means witness. It means witness in the midst of any difficulty, any trial. It means faithful to the testimony. Someone who testifies. And so what you have is he's the faithful witness. He's the prophet who testifies, who speaks to us who God is and what he's revealed. And one of the tremendous gifts that God has for us is we probably more than any other generation in history live just awash in just a flood of information. Just so much noise. And then he's the faithful witness who gives us the truth that can cut through the noise, that we can know where to turn to, who to trust. And if you think about it, what does it mean to be a witness? You know, this is legal terminology. It's a court. But it's intriguing how often we use symbols and signs like the Nike swoosh. I wonder if we even really kind of recognize what it's connected to. Thinking about this term of being a faithful witness. Let's see, who's back in the back? Is that Noah? Bring up the picture. Do you have the picture of LeBron up there? All right, so I don't know if you recognize this billboard. This was a billboard in Cleveland that was actually up, and it's LeBron. Isn't it interesting? You have King James' arms spread out, and it says, we are witnesses. Now, that billboard was actually 10 stories tall. So for, like, perspective, drive out of the back of the neighborhood and look at the Pixon. It's, it's like 40 feet taller than that entire building. And it was up for seven years, and they took it down, and then they put it back up, and then they've recently taken it down again. <laughs> but what are they saying? We are witnesses. Witnesses of what? Witnesses, um, what role do the witnesses play? You know, one of the things that uh, athletes often make fun of fans is how when they win, the fans will cheer and like, yay, we did it. And the athletes will say, like, they don't say this publicly because they know who writes their gigantic paychecks. But what they're thinking is, there's no we. What do you mean, we? Is there a frog in your pocket? There's no we. Like, no, we did it, you watched. And the witness that we're called to when Jesus says, Jesus is a faithful witness, it's not like that. We don't sit on the sidelines and watch somebody else do something great. He actually is issuing us an invitation to join him. And one of the themes of Revelation is his victory is not complete until the number of witnesses, the number of martyrs, is complete. 
And it's this incredible picture that it's, it's moving to the, the, the wedding ceremony of the lamb and his bride, but you can't have the ceremony till all of his people are gathered. And there's still the lost that have to come in. There's still some martyrs that have to come in. That's why in like chapter 7 and 8, you have the martyrs around the throne, and they say, how long, O Lord, how long? And he says, rest until the full number of your brothers and sisters are complete, till they come in. You can't have the ceremony till the family's all together. And one of the beautiful pictures that Revelation says is you don't just sit on the sidelines, you have to join in. You participate. You're an active participant in the victory and the triumph doesn't begin till everybody's here. You know, I don't know, one of the kind of interesting things, and you can see when um, people get married from different cultures, some of the kind of cultural clashes come, and weddings is often a humorous time to see those play out. And uh, part of Cynthia's family, you know, her main name was Schultz. So it's like this, you know, kind of Germanic. And then so someone in her family married someone from Venezuela. And uh, it was interesting because I don't remember what time the wedding was supposed to start. Let's say like two. And it's like 1.55. And like nobody from the bride's family, they're not even there. And then all of like <laughs> the group's family, like the, the grandparents starting to get very anxious. Like what, what's going on? You got to start. You're going to start at two o'clock. It starts at 2. Well, we can't start to, like, the, the bride's not here. We can't start. Well, it doesn't matter. We've got to start. And then there's this, this tension. And then they're saying, well, it doesn't start till we get here. Like, the, wet, the point of the wedding is the people, and it doesn't matter what time it is. It doesn't start till we're all here. Well, actually, that's probably a better, a better image of what Revelation is all about. There's a family that has to be gathered, and we can't start the celebration till we're all here. So think about that when you're making your Sunday plans. In a very real sense, our worship is always incomplete if people in the family aren't together. So we come to, to take part in this triumph. Another powerful thing that he's joining them, because part of the witnesses is that you'll be my witness even in the midst of struggle, sorrow, and suffering. Jesus was the faithful witness, but his faithful witnessing led him to the cross. And then he's actually issuing an invitation that's not just join me in my victory, but join me in my struggle. Join me in my suffering. But think about for a second how joining him in that transforms what the suffering is and what it can do to you. Because when suffering comes to our life, and it comes to us all, you know, there's only three stages of life. You're moving into a stage of suffering, you're in it, or you're coming out. Those are the three life cycles. And when we, you come into one or in one, you know, the, one of the most important questions that will determine the shape of your life is how do you respond to it? And one thing we do is you, you can become angry with God and say, you know, how could you let this happen and treat me so badly? You can become angry with yourself, like how, how could I let this happen and be so foolish to, you can be angry uh, with others, you can try to avoid it or you can complain about it, but one of the gifts of the gospel is that we can join Jesus in his triumph over it and instead of denying it or hiding from it, we can actually be victorious over it. And we can, uh, it can become a school through which we can grow and a school through which it can show us our need for him. We can come freed from being too attached to worldly things. It can transform us in a way that nothing else could because he's been victorious over it. And we join him in that. And that's all part of things wrapped up in what does it mean that he's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn 
of the dead. He's the one who conquered death. And so his resurrection guarantees ours. But notice he's the firstborn. And then all those who come are part of his family. And this is one of the great keys. Are you a part of the family of the risen? That's what we celebrate when we celebrate baptism, which uh, we're going to be having in a couple months. We're ordering a baptistry that we can have here, a portable one, and then we're going to start getting on a regular rhythm so we can start celebrating baptisms together because what we celebrate is that we're part of the family of the twice-born, the family of the risen, the family who have died to sin and have risen to new life. And he's the firstborn, and his resurrection ensures ours. And so now daily, we can be the kind of people who out of doubt, we can have hope that rises or faith. Or out of fear, we can kind of be the people that have confidence rise. Out of despair, hope can rise because he's the firstborn of the dead. All authority is given to him. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. So everyone, no matter who they are, stands under someone. And he's over the kings of the earth and See this kind of great movement of the prophet who speaks to us a word, the priest who's the sacrifice that r- and rises from the dead, and the king who is the ruler over the heavens and earth. And you see the three great movements of his ministry. In life he taught, then he died to save, then now he lives to rule, and kind of that trifecta of cross, resurrection, now ascension. It's kind of the great historical tsunami that's transformed, transformed the world. And he's asking us to join in that transformation. Now let's shift and let's think about those three tasks. Because what does that then mean for um, how we engage or experience Him? And look at this threefold, the threefold work or the threefold way that we experience Him. If you're a Christian this morning, the truest thing about you is that you have been loved, you've been freed, and you are being made. Loved, freed, being made. He's loved us, and that too parallels his earthly ministry. And you can think, all right, how has he loved us? And I've got here on your sheet, I've got seven full, I think I've got the sevenfold titles. And so in the fall, we're going to do a sermon series, an eight-week series, where we look at all seven of these, where you just look at the titles and say, how has he loved us? It's our theme for the years, joining Jesus and making all things new. In order to join him, we have to know who he is. What has he come to do? Who is his, what's his identity? And it's his identity that shapes ours. And Matthew, in this beautiful way, in the first part of his gospel, sets it up that you have the son of Abraham, the son of David, and the new Moses. So these are three categories that help us understand his categories. And all these titles are here fit under one of those categories. Think about the, the son of David, the new David. He's the warrior king who comes to defeat all of God's enemies. And you can see that Jesus doing that. Go spend some time just reading through the Gospel of Mark. And one of the things you'll notice, Mark is a gospel that puts the warrior, uh, kind of unleashes the, Jesus as the warrior. He's coming to defeat all of God's enemies. And look at the enemies that he triumphs over. You know, there's, a, uh, there's 13, it's kind of the 13 characters who are kind of side characters. And they, they come on the scene and all 13 of them in Mark chapter 1 through 9, all 13 characters are under the shadow of death in some way. They have some type of either spiritual brokenness or physical brokenness. They're under the shadow of darkness. 
And all three of them come to Jesus, and he conquers uh, the darkness in every situation. Physical ailments, personal ailments, spiritual ailments, demonic oppression. And you can see the warrior king setting his people free, just like David. But just like the new David, one of the things the king does is he restores God's people. He gathers them. He unifies them. Not just uh, physical brokenness, but relational brokenness. He's putting them back together again. You see him as the suffering servant who bears our iniquities. You, know, you really want to feel the force of how he loves us this way. You can go to Isaiah 53, which is one of the key scriptures about what he came to do. And you can just try and ask the Lord to help you feel the, the we and the him that surely he has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. And you see the way the suffering servant has loved us to heal us and to bear our burdens and then you can take the themes of the new Moses who comes as the deliverer to redeem his people and take them out of one kingdom of darkness and slavery into a kingdom of light and flourishing. He's the redeemer and he's the lawgiver who ascends to the Lord's mountain and says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he gives them the gift of his word so that they can be wise and walk in his ways. And he's the lamb of God who's the ultimate Passover sacrifice who's slain so they can be redeemed. He's the atonement maker who takes upon the, the sins of the world so they can experience the day of release and the guilt from the sin is laid upon him. And then he's Abraham's son. Who was Abraham's son? He was Isaac, the son of promise, the heir, the one who would receive all of the promises and the inheritance to bring uh, his people into his family. He's the heir who's building God's family and bringing you in. As you look at kind of those seven titles of who he is and what he does, if any one of those begin to land on you with all of its spiritual potency and force, you'll never be the same. You can be freed and you can say, this is how I have been loved by defeating the spiritual enemies, by bringing me. Your boss thinks of you. If you're loved like this, what does it matter if somebody at work slices up your reputation? If you're loved like this, what does it matter that you have a chronic ailment that you can't kick? When you're loved like this, what does it matter that you've gained 10 pounds since high school? What does it matter? You know, this is your true family. And often days like this, this can be one of the most freeing and releasing things we experience. You know, I think about things like Mother's Day because often it can be a challenging day for people. It can be a day filled with regret and guilt. You know, I was, uh, it's interesting as we kind of gauge, one of the things as we grow as a church, we'll kind of gauge when are the, the spikes of attendance. And uh, so uh, it's not this way here, but our church in Kentucky and Alabama, you know, these are rural communities. And uh, would anybody like to guess what was our most attended Sunday? Now, set you up, what is today? <laughs> it wasn't Easter and it wasn't Christmas. It was Mother's Day. 
And you think, why? And here's a little fun fact. Our least attended Sunday, anybody want to guess what that was? Father's Day. And so my theory, here's my theory, is that everybody's coming home for Mother's Day, and Mama says, the only thing I want is you to come to church with me. So everybody comes to church, and then on Father's Day, the only thing Dad wants is I don't have to go. So he doesn't go. So I don't know if that's true or not. But that was the, that was the uh, numerical reality. And one Mother's Day at our church in Alabama, I was just kind of waxing sentimental about all things mothers, encouraging the mothers and talking about how uh, there's no greater power in the entire world than self-sacrificial love. And for probably many of you in here, there's no human who has sacrificed more for your good than your mother and was kind of going on and talking all about that lived reality. And there in the front row sitting next to Cynthia was a little girl in our church who was 13 at the time and had come from a terribly, one of the most broken homes we've ever encountered. Four siblings, four different dads. I think they lived in 13 different states. She was 13. She was the most motherly of any person in the home. She took more care of the different children than any one else. And as I was talking, I looked and her eyes were welling up with tears. And I thought, Stop it. Stop talking. Every word you say is wounding her. And then after the service, she looked at Cynthia and just started crying. She says, I'll never experience that. I'll, I'll never have a mom who loves me like that. And the promise of the gospel is not, oh, yes, you will. It'll be okay. The promise of the gospel is you might not. You probably won't. But the gift of the gospel is that you'll experience a savior like that. You can experience a heavenly father like this. You can experience one who sacrificed everything for you. And so the great gift that you're an heir, you've been brought into this family. If you carry any guilt that you say, I've never been loved like that, or I know I didn't love like that, you can be freed. Because you have experienced, if you're a Christian, a love far better than even the best mothers can give you. And on this day, if you have been loved well, if your mother did the best she could, then you should be thankful and thank her for that. But that's the first thing. It says we have been loved. And as you know, in order to experience the power of what he's done, you have to know who he is. What are his titles? What has he done? And the next thing it says, he's freed us. He's freed us by the power of his blood. His blood has freed us from our sins by his blood. And this gets at what I wrote in the, so I knew I wouldn't be able to cover all of this. So I wrote an article in the email that went out yesterday. So uh, don't put it in your junk mail, read it. It's about the wonderful exchange that kind of unpacks the, all this, this full reality that on the cross, he, he, there's two dynamics on the cross. He bore our guilt and took the punishment that we deserve so that by faith he can then confer onto us the status that that he achieved. So that first part is all about how you see the cycle in Romans 1, 2, 3, how it sets up in all the grisly and, and, and gory detail that sin masters everyone. And there's no one who's righteous, not one. And that God's law condemns us all. But then on the cross, we can be freed. But God, he takes upon himself that penalty. And then the second part is that he then confers onto us by faith the status of his son. And so Christ shares with us his perfectly righteous status. He was the perfectly righteous one who has done, is doing, and will forever do the perfect will of the Father. And where we trust in him, we get that same status conferred to us. That's what it means to have the righteousness. 
We share his status of full acceptance. And we receive that. And we have that for all eternity. And what that means then in Romans is once you can live in that, then you now have this, called kind of the sixth step of the walk of freedom. You now can live free because you have this status given to you. And it starts in chapter 5 that there's uh, that um, all of us who've been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. And so what we're going to do next year in Lent, the six weeks leading up to the cross, we're going to look at the, the six freedoms that the cross purchased for us. The freedom of forgiveness so we can experience and express forgiveness. The freedom of endurance so that now we can make it and tribulations don't, don't destroy us. They improve us. The freedom from death. The freedom from sin's dominion in chapter 6. The freedom from the tyranny of the law as a system for salvation. And then the glorious climax in chapter 8. The freedom that in him we now have freedom from fear. Because in him there's therefore now no condemnation. And we are persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So we now can be free from fear because we have no condemnation, no separation. And these are the great freedoms that the cross purchased for us. So when he says he's loved us this way, this is how he's freed us. And the great joy and challenge of the Christian life is to live in that freedom, to walk it out, to live it. Started this week reading a book that I'm intrigued by. It's called Status Anxiety. And it's from a, well, he's a Swiss philosopher who now teaches in London named Alan de Bouton. Probably totally butchered that name, but. And uh, he's really intriguing to me because he's kind of like England's version of Jordan Peterson, who's a, a philosopher. And he, he's got this thing that he calls the spiritual atheist. So he's not a Christian. He's an atheist, but wants to be a spiritual one, which I'm intrigued by that quest. And, uh, but his, this book called Status Anxiety is really intriguing to me because the way he sets it up, and I'll kind of set it up, and you tell me if this rings true to your experience in life. But he says there's basically two types of societies in the, in the world. You have traditional societies and kind of Western individualistic societies. It says in a, a traditional society, you get your self-worth and your significance by fulfilling a social role. So it's your job in essence is to be a good father, good mother, good son, good daughter, good brother, kind of whatever your social role is a part of this member of this community. Just as in traditional size is the family or the group means everything. Community means everything. Your individual freedom uh, doesn't mean anything. It's not important. What your job is is to fit in, be a good son, be a good daughter. Um, so in traditional sizes, there's a lot of moral rules. And one of the things that kind of plague you is you always are under a sense of guilt. I'm never quite living up to my role and responsibility. He says that people are always being crushed by guilt because you're never, you never quite feel like you're being a good enough son or a good enough daughter or living up to the parents or uh, the community's expectation. He says there's no freedom because you're crushed by guilt. But he says in individualistic societies, like in the West, um, he says slightly different. He says in individualistic societies, the Western society, we're in an egalitarian, individualistic meritocracy where we say, you know, you can be anything you want to be. You just do it. You achieve it. You become it. And uh, you just have to go for it. And he says, we're not so much crushed by guilt, but we're weighed down by anxiety. 
what he calls status anxiety. He says, in these type societies, you have to be good. You have to win. You have to succeed. You have to make money. You have to look good. He says, it's funny, nobody in these type of societies really cares what they look like or what they wear, but in this society, that's all that matters. And then uh, in traditional societies, you can wear anything, and these you can't. And uh, he said, in these societies, and, and I wonder, do you feel that? Like, one of the unique things that happened as soon as we moved here to Lake Nona, all of a sudden I started becoming insecure about things I never thought about when we lived in Alabama. It's like our first kind of social mixer we went to, there's houses in the neighborhood, got home, it's like, wow, every person in that room was younger, better looking, more successful, I feel great about myself. And you kind of live in this world where there's just ambient anxiety, where it's, it's a world made, it's a winner's circle, and you feel like you have to win. But the beauty and the power of the gospel, and this is the great exchange, part one and part two, it actually sets you free from both. If you're from a traditional society weighed down by your guilt, it frees you from that. And if you're in an individualistic society weighed down by status, anxiety, it frees you from that. That's part of how we walk in the freedom of the new life, because we live in a status that's conferred to us. And so right now, this morning, if you're a Christian, the truest thing about you, and it doesn't matter if all week you have won or lost, the truest thing about you is that you have been loved, you have been freed, and you are being made into something new. And the power of the gospel is you can live into that. You are loved, freed, and being made. And then what is this we're being made into? It's being made into kingdom and priests kind of beautiful collection. There's so much biblical theology that's just kind of poured into these phrases, but just, just kind of hit. You can see on things, we're actually going to do six weeks of sermons in the fall. After our seven weeks of his identity, we're going to do six weeks at looking at his work. And you can see the threefold task when the kingdom comes, when Jesus comes to bring the kingdom, what he does is he proclaims what's true he heals what's broken, and he defeats what's evil. Those are the marks of the kingdom. When you see those things, you know you're in the presence of the kingdom. He's proclaiming what's true, healing what's broken, defeating what's evil. And so we're going to look at those. It's kind of like, um, it can, so almost nobody in here is from Florida. So you might not appreciate the like lung suffocating humidity that's happening right now. Or you might not appreciate the fact every time you go outside, like sand is everywhere. It gets on your feet and you can't defeat it. Um, but some people really do. And so Cynthia is a Florida girl. And you know, after we got married, we moved to Louisville, Kentucky, which in her mind, like, that was the Arctic. And like, she cried. So she thinks, like, winter shoes are black flip flops. And when she realized you can't wear, like, you can't wear those, like, past September, she cried. And then in Louisville, you know, it's gray from, like, September to May, just gray. And so every summer or every um, Christmas, so we're, we're going back to Florida. And it's almost like as we would get a little closer, you know, part of her, her soul would revive. And then we never did this, but I always thought about just stopping at the sign that says, welcome to Florida. We're glad you're here and just let her hug it. And she's like, I'm glad I'm here too. And it's like, I, I know I'm in Florida. Like, you know, the humidity is everywhere. There's blue skies. There's sand. There's palm trees. Welcome to Florida. These, they, we're glad you're here. And when you hear 
proclamation of what's true, when you see healing of what's broken, when you see defeating of what's evil, those are signs that the kingdom is here. These are messages from Christ to you that says, welcome to the kingdom. We're glad you're here. And the great calling of the Christian life and our church and every church is to join Jesus in doing these things. Proclaiming what's true, healing what's broken, and defeating what's evil. These are his strategic priorities of bringing in the kingdom, and they should be ours too. But let's shift and let's land the plane with the last little phrase there is to him be the glory. And it ends in song. It ends in celebration. One of the beautiful things that you see all throughout Revelation is it's Revelation in one sense is a musical. And every time they see a new image of Christ, they break out into song. And it made me think this week as I was reading through this as the songs grow and they get more developed and they get more ornate. But I was thinking about how in one sense, uh, I don't know which one of you parents here, so it was one of you families, and so I'm going to steal your line, but I, I don't mean to steal it. You tell me, I can't remember which family it was, but we were in a social setting, and kind of, we had, there was a, a bunch of kids running around, and so it is as it is, it was noisy, and a couple of the kids just started breaking out in song, singing something, and I kind of looked at the mom and started smirking, and she goes, hmm, welcome to our life, the musical. So this is our life. It's a musical. And one of our marital disputes is we often have a hard time deciding what movies to watch. And one of Cynthia's favorite genres is musicals. And probably my least favorite is musical. <laughs> so we got to... And one of the reasons I don't like musicals is because they're so unrealistic. And then, of course, her response is like, hello, have you seen the Marvel movies? That's real. Yeah, that's very realistic. <laughs> Well, yeah, but I mean, this is more unrealistic because like you don't have cowboys in Oklahoma in the middle of the sun just start breaking out in song, singing and dancing. That, that's just not how the world is. And this week as I was reading this, I started thinking, well, maybe it should be. Maybe our life should be more like a musical than at least it is in my own heart because every time they encounter the reality of who Christ is, they break out in song. Because when you see him as who he is, you see what he's done, and then you experience a full reality that who I am in that is I've been loved, I've been freed, and I'm being made into something. It fills you with song. So as you look over this list, what do you need most this morning? What do you need to experience from him most? you need to experience the power of the warrior king who can set you free from the chains that bind you? Do you need to experience the grace of the restorer who brings separated people together in love and harmony? Do you need to experience the heir who brings a promise that he's building his family? What do you need? And then ask him for it. And then which of those three can most move you this morning that, that can cause your heart to sing, to know that I have been loved like this, I've been freed like this, and I'm being made into something new? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great work of the gospel and the great promise of who Jesus is, and we ask that you would help us, everyone in this room, to experience its full reality and its full weight. So I pray for anyone who's come in this room and this day is a heavy day. It's not a day that they, they celebrate, but it's filled with doubts and regrets. We pray that you would free them from that. 
if they've never experienced the kind of love like they desire uh, from an earthly parent, we praise you that we have a heavenly father and we have a um, divine savior who has give, loved us in, in a sacrificial way that nothing else can compete or compare. So we pray that you would encourage us with that. And if we have experienced evidences of that kind of love from those around us, help us to be thankful. Help us have the courage to say thank you to those who have loved us well. And then we ask that you help us to be like that. We thank you for the power of your spirit that's making us less selfish, less self-centered, who we can express after we experience that kind of love. So we ask that you would make us into those kind of people. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.